I'm delighted to be here tonight in the cozy confines of Artifact Coffee to continue our Origin Speaker series. I'm Spike Jurdy, the owner of Woodbury Kitchen here in Baltimore. This gathering is intended to advance the conversation about food, its origins, and what is happening around our food system in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. We started our first restaurant, Woodbury Kitchen, with a commitment to local sourcing and now work closely with more than 60 different farmers and producers throughout the region. We supply our four restaurants and our canning and butchery operations with meat, eggs, grains, fish and shellfish, cooking oil, cheeses and produce, literally everything we need to feed our guests. The hope is that this series will shine a light on the work that this community is doing in our area. The conversation is held monthly at Artifact, our coffee shop, in the heart of the Woodbury neighborhood in Baltimore. Thank you for everybody uh, that's here tonight joining us at Artifact Coffee, the friendly confines of our side room here. This is a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, and we have three uh, incredibly interested, interesting... Sorry, I had a little cider before. The- <laughs> <laughs> You're interested, right? That's fair to say. Okay, they're interested. They are interested, but they're also very interesting in that uh, three distinct kind of... Um, viewpoints on orchards and uh, I mean what we're tasting tonight are apples and apple cider. I'm sure we'll have a a lot of talk about that. First I want to introduce Rob Miller across the table from me. He and his wife Patricia Power planted their first apple tree 16 years ago with a planting of a thousand to start. They've been adding trees ever since then and now have over 4,000 trees of specialty American and European cider apples. Uh, They're out in Frederick County, right? Yes. And they sell their hard ciders in Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, D.C., and West Virginia. They operate a tasting room, which I've been to. I love it. Our whole team was out there the other day, uh, and they had a great time. And in the fall, they offer fresh pressed cider and fresh apples, including a small U-pick operation. New to me. I'd like to hear about that. Uh, Rob is a self-taught, full-time orchardist. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for being here. Next to Rob, we have... My pleasure. Okay. Applause. I think that might be a new feature of the, uh, or maybe it's just Rob, because we're thrilled to have you. And uh, this doesn't really say, but you are the head of Distillery Lane Cider Works. We should have got that That's in there. True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, all right, now that we're clear on that, Gwen Coquez is the stewardship coordinator at the Baltimore Orchard Project, which is a program of civic works. Gwen was the project specialist for the Baltimore Orchard Project, where she conducted research, did some community organizing and volunteer management. Now she organizes the Orchard Stewards Program. Am I getting this right? Mm-hmm. All right. A network of trained orchardists, um, and you make the stewardship year plans with participating community orchards. The Baltimore Orchard Project has just planted its 1,000th tree. Wow. Mm-hmm. And there are almost 100 orchards in Baltimore City alone. Welcome, Gwen. Wow. And right next to me is Ben Wenk. Seventh-generation partner manager at Three Springs Fruit Farm based in Aspers, Pennsylvania. Wow. Three Springs attends local farmer's markets where I first met you all those years ago, right yeah. in Fells Point? Uh, Harbor East. Harbor East. Okay, short-lived Harbor East market. Yes. Right. So one good thing came out of that. Absolutely. Actually, I don't wanna, anyway. Oh, we loved it there. Three Springs attends local... Oh, sorry. Got that. The Wank Farmer family's diversified farm grows a little bit of everything but specializes in apples and peaches. We had a bunch of them out there. Uh, along with Rob's apples. Locally, you can find Three Springs at the Kenilworth Farmer's Market. Welcome, Ben. So I think for me, um, as I got into the world of of sourcing locally for restaurants, one of the first things I ever bought at a farmer's market and brought back to the restaurant was was, were apples. And um, you might think of it as kind of the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> of local sourcing, but to me, it's it's been one of the great things about um, buying and cooking and and eating local produce. And I guess one of the things that I see here, sitting at this table, is kind of the, the continuum um, of what I think we're going to stick mostly with apples tonight. I don't know for some reason I'm just on the apple mood, but I, th- I think back um, to kind of what apples and orchards have been in this country. And I see it kind of sitting at this table. I'm really excited, you know, as fruit, as kind of a community resource, and as cider. Um, and I just, I want to kind of get into that. But first, you know, I guess, um, Rob, if you could just talk a little bit about what you're doing at Distillery Lane. Because it's, it's been a game changer for us. 
you came online just about the time that we were. Yes. And and ever it's been kind of kismet, but you could just talk about Distillery Lane. Okay, thanks. And I'm going to drink your scrumpy while you are. Very good, very good. And, and thanks to you and Hannah and Dana for inviting me in to participate in this tonight. I, I really appreciate it. Um, so Distillery Lane, we're out in Frederick County. It's about an hour's drive from here. Um, we've got 11 acres of fruit, plus or minus. We grow about 40 varieties of apples. Um, when we started our orchard 16 years ago, our, our idea was that we were going to make hard cider. Um, and basically, we have sort of three markets. One of growing apples for hard cider, growing apples for fresh market um, for sort of and special culinary apples um, and then in the seasonally we, we do um, fresh cider so s September through through January um, and you know the business has, has evolved we've learned a lot we've made a lot of mistakes over the years um, but basically we're now wholesaling the hard cider we're, we're open year-round selling that uh, we're wholesaling the apples um, and we do a, a pretty good business this time of the year um, September through November, you know, a lot of traffic to come out and see us, get apples. We do a little bit of pick your own. Um, that's, that, that's got a, a mixed, mixed blessing to, to, to do, let people into your orchard after you've spent a lot of years, you know, cultivating every tree. And then, uh, but uh, it brings people out. People love to do that. They have the experience. They come back year after year. They bring their next child and their next child. And, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, we make about a dozen varieties of cider. And I'll point out just a couple. Um, this heritage apple. Um, this is a very traditional cider. We got a call out of the blue one day from historic Mount Vernon, and they had found us on the website, and it turns out that we grow three of the four apples that Washington grew on the estate um, in, 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 back in the day. It was the, uh, the Newtown Pippin, um, the Roxbury Russet, one of Spike's favorite, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a, a little yellow crab apple out there called the Virginia Crab or the Hughes Crab. And they called us up and said, hey, we found you we grow these apples. Would you guys make us a little bit of cider? I'm thinking, well, how much would you like? They said, 700 gallons. I said, yes, I can, I can do that. But it turns out that in Washington, and I just learned all this history in the last few years, um, in addition to while he was president and after he was president, he made hard cider um, commercially. He made um, apple brandy, and he made whiskey. And so they've rebuilt his stills there, and we sell them the cider that they run through his, his stills to make their apple brandy. Um, so that's one. That, th those are made with some old American apples. Um, it's, this is a very traditional barrel-aged cider. Um, a second one This is, a, is called Scrumpy. If you were in a pub in rural England in Somerset, where we were this summer, you find Scrumpy everywhere, sort of, sort of the drink of choice. Um, it's, a little, it's, supposed to be a little, it's a little cloudy. It's a little rough. Um, it's a little higher in alcohol, and, and if you worked back in the uh, in the orchards back in the day, you were called a wurzel, and you were paid every day in a little cash and a jug of scrumpy. Mm -hmm. So this this is a very nice. This is very traditional. This is made with all English bitter sharp apples. So mm -hmm. this is a, a very true to form. It's actually one of one of my personal favorites. And then we make um, another cider. It's always turning into one of our best sellers called Woodberry. Uh, we grow everything. We, all, we grow all of our fruit, and we grow one non-apple um, product, and that is called an aronia berry, the old choke berry. It's very astringent. It's super high in antioxidants. It's got a nice it's bitter taste to it. And uh, we blend that in with the cider, and uh, we've been talking with the Woodberry folks about it, and rather than call it aronia berry, just didn't quite ro roll off your, uh, your tongue like Woodberry did. Whoops, jeez. <laughs> it... Uh, it 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 uh, it's it's sold very well, and that's that's a sparkling version of uh, our celebration cider, which you've been drinking out there tonight. So that's sort of who we are. Is that I'd be happy with a jug of a little cash and a jug of uh, scrumpy would be. Uh, <laughs> that would, is, is it true there's a still also now going into DLC? Is that um, we, uh, we our name is Distillery Lane, and it's not because we actually have a distilling license. We still have a. We have a winery license, but if you walked out the front of our property and across the street, still on the Frederick County land map is Ahalt Distillery Lane. This whole valley where we lived up to, until Prohibition was full of distilleries. Mm. And um, we are in the process of, of getting a distilling nice. license. Awesome. It's sort of the next phrase where we would make apple brandy, with right. again, with our product. But it's yes. like the state allowed us now, Maryland, to have multiple licenses 
beer, wine, and whiskey on the same premises. Of course, the county hasn't kept pace changing their rules, so once the county does, we next year we'll have an apple brandy coming your way. Wow, can't wait. <laughs> so in the meantime, Gwen, I was really interested to talk to you tonight because you kind of, and what you guys do um, with the Orchard um, project, to me kind of harkens back to a time when, when orchards weren't necessarily a commercial enterprise, but mm. more of a, kind of a shared community resource. And the, the, the knowledge and, and the fruit of the, of, the, of the work was kind of shared. And I, just, I was really excited to hear about what you're doing in Baltimore and maybe connecting it back to that tradition in, in, yeah. here in the The fruits things. of the labor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back in the 1800s, there was almost, again, like up to where we are now, almost 100 orchards. And when we say orchards in our mind now, at, in 2016, we mean anything from three trees, which is not your orcharding standard, but three trees to 25 trees. Um, but back in the day, that meant 25 trees and up. And it was how the working class really fed each other. Um, it's how they fed their neighbors. It's how they fed um, their livestock. And um, even during the time of the Industrial Revolution, um, of course, down at the Inner Harbor, there weren't any orchards. But all out, even um, in the city, just right adjacent to the, to the um, harbor, there was a ton of orchards. So, yeah, we're really getting back. We at Bob like to think that we're connecting people to land and food and each other. Um, Luckily for us, orcharding, uh, when you're doing kind of non-toxic sprays and you're doing kind of low labor orcharding, unlike these guys, um, you only have to come and meet together once a month maximum. Um, And in this individualistic culture that we're in right now, we need excuses to see each other um, and meet each other and, you know, cross cross the line and cross um, boundaries, cross state lines even, um, but really just cross the street and meet your neighbor. Um, and orcharding, these small community orchards, is a really great way of doing that. Whether it's, you know, pruning and learning how to prune and learning about the tree architecture, or just, you know, experimenting and painting the trunks with white latex paint um, to prevent winter sunburn. Um, there's all great ways to orchard. Um, and we love learning with our community members. So, yeah, it's, we're really connecting people back to the rich Baltimore history. Which part of that, which I was interested to hear, is, is which is something I've appreciated for a little while, is the mulberries that we have here yeah. in the city. <laughs> you heard me you, talking about them? Yeah. I'm sorry? You heard me talking about them earlier? Yeah, probably. But <laughs> it's something we've been, we've been kind of going out after uh, a little bit up into Druid Hill Park and things for a while. Yeah. And you guys do the same thing. Yeah. Um, so in June and into July, we have something called Mulberry Madness. Um, we are definitely mad for mulberries. I have a really hard time to not point out mulberries now. Um, they're really easy to identify, and they're a superfood. They're packed with vitamin K, um, and they're, they're really tasty. They have kind of like this nutty flavor to them, and they're free. They're all around the city. If you look down, and usually if you see in June or July, the pavement is all marked up, your car's all marked up um, with purple spots and even white spots too, uh, that's usually the mulberry. And they're delicious, and they're really fun to harvest. You just get, like, a cane or a stick, pruning saw even. You just shake the tree just very lightly, and you have a blanket, and you, you grab all these mulberries. And, I mean, you can make um, mulberry wine. It's not that tasty, but you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll have to be the expert on blend that. Blend it with a little cider. Yeah, blend it. Blend, yeah, blend. That's the good way of doing it. Um, but, yeah, you can pair it with a bunch of things, and you just eat it right off the tree. Um, and... You know, kids in the city, any city, but especially in Baltimore, they haven't had a chance to do that, eat fruit right off the tree. And, of course, they don't, um, they don't trust that because they can't even drink the water out of their schools. Um, that water is toxic. So how can they expect um, me as, like, a white girl showing them, yeah, this fruit is edible. Um, look, I'll eat it, and then I eat it, and then they're like, okay, this crazy girl. <laughs> and, um, but then they end up eating it, and it's a beautiful experience. They see their hard labor um, turn into something fruitful, literally. Awesome. Ben Wenk. Yes, Glad sir. you're here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you guys have become so important to us over the years with uh, the fruit that you provide. We, we can a lot of it, right? We preserve a lot of it. Yeah. How was your uh, year on the... Uh, Oh boy, ah, fun, fun memories you're bringing up here, Spike. It was a, it was a rough year on the farm all the way around. Um, I guess it kind of started in the springtime, just kept coming. Springtime had a very, very late hard frost, uh, freeze really. If I remember right, it that was I think 19 degrees in the middle of uh, April. 
Which was a- a April time. 10th, but who, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Who's counting? That, that, Who's I, tracking that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, so, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, folks in our industry were very familiar with what was going on there. And unfortunately, in our case, we had a lot of um, blossoms out at that particular time. And in our industry, you only get one blossom a year. So when they're, when they're gone, they're gone. So I uh, lost... Uh, the, the lion's share of our cherry crop, both sweet and tart cherries, were uh, a real wreck. Uh, plums were all but zeroed out. Apricots were 100% zeroed out. Um, so we kind of rolled through that. We're able to salvage some, some peaches and apples, which are the, the, the two uh, largest volume crops we have at Three Springs Fruit Farm, and then moved along into the summertime, which got really hot and really dry, and so that caused a lot of our apples, once you got into the summer, to not size the way we're expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't color the way we expect because you need those cool autumn nights to kind of get that pretty rosy cheek on an apple. And um, those nights showed up in, like, you know, October when most of our crop was harvested, or at least half of it. Um, and then we finally did get rain. It cracked all of my... Gold Rush. Your Gold Rush looked nice, but ours got completely destroyed. We still haven't had any rain, so ours oh, had Oh, okay, chance. all right. So, so his are super, <laughs> super sugar-concentrated, but, yeah, but yeah. still in one piece, which is nice. It was kind of, it was actually some pretty horror show cracking in our Gold Rush this year. It was a total loss. Um, because of rain. Because, yeah, but, well, you know, when the, the tree was really starved for moisture, and then it got, I mean, I think we had like about two, two and a half inches all at once, and it just kind of just kind of cracked them in, in every direction possible. I mean, it was, it was pretty brutal. Our, we have tons of horror show pictures on our Instagram of folks who are <laughs> oh, no. willing to check it out. It was, good, it was a good timing. It was like right before Halloween. I'm like, you guys really want to get a trick-or-treat? Go check out our gold rush when they're on the tree. It'll shock you. So it was, uh, um, I mean, it was as difficult a year. I, I mean, I've been on the, back on the farm now for 10 years on our family farm, and um, easily the worst of those 10 years was this year, but even talking to some of the folks who have been orcharding and, and growing tree fruit in our area for, which is, you know, Adams County, Pennsylvania is really kind of a... Uh, yeah, talk an, about that. Talk sure. a little bit more about what we're talking about we, in central PA there. Yeah, so we're, we're really lucky in, in Adams County, uh, Pennsylvania. We were discussing it earlier. We have a, a really nice uh, microclimate that's conducive to growing tree fruit. And um, while our hillsides were not quite good enough to prevent the uh, peaches and cherries from freezing, freezing and, uh, and the plums and apricots and whatnot. Generally speaking, we tend to be pretty frost-free, and that's, mm-hmm. if, you, if the mic didn't pick it up, that's me knocking on the wood here. Um, pretty frost-free in terms of having a consistent apple crop, and that's just through um, cold air drainage, the same as Hot air rising, the cold air likes to sink down into the, so in Adams County, we generally, we don't like plant those creek bottoms and generally the, the cold air will settle there until the morning comes and then when it gets, the sun heats up, we can break that convection. And, um, so just with kind of that unique feature of us being on the southern or the warmer slope of the South Mountain in Adams County, we have a, uh, you know, a, a very, kind of larger uh, tree fruit industry there that's been around for about 100 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's also it's a benefit as uh, we, we kind of also have the whole industry build up around us. You know, it, we're, we're fortunate that, you know, if we need extra ladders or if we need more wire for our trellises and stuff, all, all that infrastructure, all the supplies we need, all the things that, that, that we need to be successful that might break or go wrong or run out on any given day, uh, we kind of have a lot of that infrastructure or fingertips. Um, so that's, yeah, that's really one of the things that makes uh, Adams County kind of one of the the kind of larger volume tree fruit and especially apple um, growing areas on the East Coast. And where do the, most of those apples end up? Most of those apples end up at uh, processing facilities uh, such as what Naus Foods has. I think they have, was it, four factories in, in – uh, in Adams County alone, and um, so yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that fruit. Like if you guys had the the York Imperial Apple and the Golden Delicious out there uh, that we brought for the tasting, those are the the two most widely planted uh, varieties in Adams County, and that's because they're so 
versatile uh, for processing. So they could be made into apple juice, apple pie filling, apple sauce, um, apple rings like you might get at like a Cracker Barrel or something. They're all uh, Nats Foods products. Um, so a very, very large pro- uh, apple processing industry mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, in Adams County specifically, but um, Pennsylvania itself is also the fourth largest apple producing state, and, and I got buddies all across the state, and they, I want to make sure I don't leave them out because they're very fine growers as well. But, um, yeah, um, still a, a large percentage of the fruit going to processors, but also to packing houses. So folks who would take large volumes of apples and sort them on very sophisticated uh, machines uh, to to remove any uh, defects or any kind of uh, abnormalities or, or cosmetic uh, injured fruit and send them in big boxes to grocery stores, like any grocery store right. you would have here in the East Coast. So. Awesome. The York apple, just one thing you mentioned. The York apple is a is a, a product of your... Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a very much a, a Pennsylvania heirloom. Uh, there's a little historical marker near the, uh, the original... Nursery in York County, Pennsylvania, which is, of course, right up 83 from our location here, um, where that, that apple was first kind of commercially propagated. And uh, it's, it, up until recently, was the number one apple planted in Adams County, and its properties are unique for processing because it is extremely firm. And it's also kind of unique, and you'll, you'll be able to pick them out once you, once you become accustomed to them because they look like they're all lopsided. They look mm-hmm. kind of like... And uh, they have a very, very nice, uh, unique, kind of mildly tart flavor, but they're almost kind of blocky and square. Like, even when, when we're pressing them for cider, like, they don't want to roll down. When you, when you tilt the bin dumper, they just, like, kind of, like, <laughs> they, like they don't roll. They're, not, they're, they're, they're too square to roll. They just kind of, like, like, kind of, like, think of, like, a square wheel. That's how they want to roll. It's very awkward and kind of interesting, but, yeah. So... One of the things I think that's cool about what you're doing with the Orchard Project is you try to get people to appreciate. You mentioned defects. Mm. Or, and you, you try to get people to think a little differently about fruit. Yeah. <laughs> thank oh, yeah. you. Right. We all thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have our funky fruit campaign. I think the uh, official government um, sanction is the ugly fruit, quote unquote. We like funky fruit just because of alliteration. Um, but yeah, there's like, uh, as Ben was saying, it's cosmetic. Um, differences. So just because something is misshapen doesn't necessarily mean that it's not edible Um, or just has little markings, etc. And so we like to educate people on what might be harmful, like what kind of blemish might not be something that you want to eat and what kind of blemish is something that you can just ignore and pop in your mouth. Um, And yeah, so we we try and uh, it's really difficult, but we what is really interesting is um, Again, kids are more welcome to trying that kind of stuff. Um, from what I've recognized, I we like literally have pictures of kids like kind of like not like looking at an apple like it's the dis- most disgusting thing in the world. It's, like, it's just misshapen. That's all. Mm-hmm. Um, and we say it comes from your city. Like that's an apple grown right here in Baltimore. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, it tastes really good. And again, if I just put it in my mouth, then they do it. And then there, we literally have before and after pictures where the kid's like, okay, not that bad. And they can see um, what I've been told, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, what I've been told is that a lot of flavor uh, in fruit, especially apples and European pears, comes from the skin. So sometimes we grow fruit, um, especially in America, we've kind of made this like super apple that's mostly water. Um, and we have lost the flavor. Uh, that being said, there's still like delicious apples like Honeycrisp that we've invented. Um, but we, we, I actually prefer funky fruit because, you know, the square, I guess, inches of the fruit, the skin can get to that square inches a little bit easier, and it makes that fruit a little bit tastier. That's just what I've been told. Um, I learned from the cider guys uh, from that. And I, I think it tastes sweeter. And there's just something really special about, like, Something that's been rejected before, you know, it's an underdog, and uh, Gotta there's love something. That in Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're just the ragtag group of underdogs, and there's something really special about that. Um, we ask that all of our orchards um, uh, that they don't spray um, with any uh, to- toxic sprays. We try to refrain from the term organic, um, just because 
it's starting to move into this like bougie yet confusing term um, that we haven't quite learned how to make accessible. Um, as a commercial orchardist, some, you do need a spray sometimes, and you need, you need to fight um, for what you've worked so hard for. For us, we're not really looking for a huge harvest. It looks good for us. It looks good on a map. It looks good um, for a lot of different reasons. But we're not looking to get the biggest harvest ever. Uh, we're looking to get sweet, delicious food that people feel pr pr like proudful about. So um, I, I would say that there's something probably that has to do with just like using non-toxic sprays, um, whether it's diluted milk um, spray that doesn't allow for the fruit to grow in this big, like voluptuous, fancy fruit. Um, but at the same time, it's like misshapen and fun and funky and um, you're probably- Well, it's a good, I think it's, it's important to talk about because it's helped me, you know, coming into it, I think it's easy to ask somebody like Ben or Rob, like, are you organic or, you know, what, yeah. what are your practices around and it's something we got to talk about because it's difficult to be, yeah. I mean, what I've come to understand is it's difficult to be, to run an orchard, to grow tree fruit in the mid-Atlantic. I mean, there are inherent challenges. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's great that you've kind of drawn the distinction between what these guys do as commercial, you know, on a commercial basis and what you're doing in the city. Um, but I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit about what you have to do to, to grow tree fruit in this, in this region, Rob or, or Ben. Um, it, it, it is a challenge, um, and I, I will be the first to admit that we've sort of learned the hard way. I, mean, we, I think we have 40 varieties that we grow now, but I'll bet it, at one point we planted 20 more that just didn't do well. I mean, they just got. I mean, that, that's the, the the disadvantage of planting sort of unique or oddball fruit is you can't just go to the neighboring farm and say, "Hey, how does uh, uh, Roxbury Russet on M7 rootstock do for you?" Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, "What do you?" You know, they just give, they give you a look, and why would you do that? So we, <laughs> we've, we've uh, with time, <laughs> yeah. um, we've we've torn out a lot of things that didn't work that were mm -hmm. disease prone, um, and we have been planting for the fresh fruit market these new disease resistant varieties, which you know, like like Gold Rush that we have here tonight, which is resistant and almost every disease um, except for. Or, uh, cedar apple rust but and and it, for us because we do everything for cider um, you know you're always going to get 10 15 percent of your fruit this perfect fruit that we can use for sale but you know if it's got some small cosmetic blemishes or you know we don't spray for color or for some pests you know you can spray for just about everything for fruit size and color mm -hmm. we don't need to do that because it's all going to processing anyhow but the biggest issue is the summer heat and humidity that this year was no exception mm -hmm. for that I mean you just you suffer from assorted blights that will get on there and mm -hmm. on the fruit and, and it'll drip onto the mm -hmm. fruit below so you almost have to spray fungicides for that mm -hmm. but uh, very little for for pests um, they're you know the japanese beetles are annoying in july but uh, you know and and then you're, you're you're careful you know you get late in the season and you know you want to be spraying because you're, you're close to harvest so you're, you're careful of that and this year we had like ben we had a reduced fruit crop so you know, do you spray at all? You know, you had to make these decisions like our crop is so bad, it costs mm -hmm. so much. You know, the, the biggest thing about those things too is, is the cost is enormous to buy most of those sprays. So mm -hmm. you're very judicious in, in, in using chemical sprays because you, know, you don't want to use the cost. So we didn't, mm -hmm. we, we sprayed very little this year really. Uh, and, and still, we, we still had, you know, probably as good a broad year as, <laughs> as, as for the fruit we did get as, as any, any year when we maybe sprayed a little more. So it will certainly change our decision making next year. And you're limited to a certain amount of sprays, right? In under yes. Maryland, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's something like six or eight sprays that you can do in a season or in the. Year. Well, you're you're limited to the timing. It's not so okay. much the, the absolute. The uh, there are some chemicals that you can only spray like once yeah. uh, for certain pests, but mm -hmm. uh, you're limited to the, the timing for when you go back in the orchard, yeah. and then also what's uh, the pre-harvest interval they call it. So, mm -hmm. so Ben, you, um, I think one of the things you'll hear from orchardists a lot of times is the phrase integrated pest management mm. all the time and uh I, I don't know that's something that you hear mostly in in the context of orchards less so with other um can you talk a little bit about that and how you guys practice and sure yeah that's that's uh it's a, a phrase that means a lot to us but it can also be a scapegoat for a lot of folks yeah um uh it's something that we take very seriously at three springs um, and it all really starts and ends with uh, scouting. I mean, the most important thing is, is the time I spend out there checking our, our pheromone traps, which monitor for insects, you know, checking uh, for 
any, any disease buildup um, on foliage and on fruit and spending all that time knowing what's out in the orchard. And then we take all that information, the results of my scouting, and we have a weather service that measures um, pretty much everything related to the weather for our specific site on the orchard. So that would be everything from what you'd expect, you know, high-low temperature to leaf wetness mm -hmm. to, uh, um, you know, dew point, anything like that, very specific to the farm. And we can take that data and apply it to different models that our, uh, our Langring University researchers have come up with for the, the insects and the diseases and the bacteria that we're monitoring. Right. So they can tell us, well, you know, if, if, the, if we had a temperature of, of 55 and a leaf wetness that the leaves were wet for a period of time lasting four and a half hours or something like that, they can tell you just how quickly... Uh, a fungus like apple scab is going to be mm. active given those specific conditions. So um, I, another another analogy I like to use when explaining this to folks is, you know, uh, when you're checking these insect traps and you catch ten moths. Uh, let's take for example, codling moth is a, a moth that'll make a worm in an insect, which again is people freak out about it, and that puts pressure on me to keep them out. Um, if mm -hmm. uh, we <laughs> If it were up to us, it's like, well, you know, we don't want them to destroy our crop, but there's a lot of pressure to keep these worms out of our apples. And uh -huh. so mm -hmm. if I catch 10 codling moth in a week, well, that 10 can be a completely different 10 depending on what growth stage that moth is in. So if I go back to my, and I get an e three emails actually every day with, with insect data, disease data, and kind of the forecast. Mm -hmm. And... If we catch 10 moths in a week and I look at my email, it says that 100% of the population is a flying adult. That means that every moth that could be out there is flying. So I caught two and the population is 100% adults. That's manageable. That's not a big deal. We can count on some of our beneficial insects to go out and, and eat some of those on our own without us having to do anything. Now, if, we, if I go back and look at that email and I say that it says that you know most of... Uh, the population is not flying. They're all nymphs. They're all eggs. That means that I caught 10 moths of a much, much larger population. Right, right, right. You know, that's a completely different 10. You know, 10 moths at 10% of the population is a lot of moths. 10 mm. moths at 100% of the population, very small. So um, it's really gotten very, very sophisticated and very science-based in terms of uh, monitoring to make sure that we know what's out there and what the appropriate response is. Right, and part of the point is to be more targeted. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And our, and our goal is that we don't do anything. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what, what we're going to do is going to be determined not by, well, it's Wednesday again, so let's... We're spraying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. it's, it's, it's determined based on um, a, a long kind of triage Steps that, that go into making a decision. Are the beneficials you mentioned, are they something you've introduced, or are they just, are these natural? Well, in some cases, both. Um, they, uh, we, we like to think is when you're really practicing integrated pest management the way you should, then you're going to be cultivating more biodiversity on your farm at all times. Um, and ways to do that include, like, uh, we had a discussion out in the lobby earlier about um, honeybees, and we've, we've planted large sections of our orchard as bee pollinator habitat. So, you know, those are big, you know, I mean, they're, they're habitat for not only the bees, but some of these beneficials we're speaking of, like parasitic wasps, they mm -hmm. love hanging out in places like that. So when you're, when you're being a responsible steward of your orchard, you're going to get those beneficials to grow on their own. Their, their product is their presence and their and the number of different species is always going to be increasing ideally and in one particular case we actually did introduce and this happened when I was an intern at the the Penn State Fruit Research and Extension Center which does a lot of tree fruit research for Pennsylvania right there in Biglerville um, we discovered that there was a brand new um, mite predator that was present uh, that hadn't been discovered in Pennsylvania before and so Part of my job that summer was to go out and, and cut limbs from places we knew they were and go to orchards where we hadn't found them yet and see if we could get them established. And one of those places was lucky enough to be our farm, and we did get them established there. T. Pyri was the, 
the name of that mite predator. So we've done a little bit of both, but but generally we try to we try to kind of um, design our management to enhance the the population of beneficial insects rather than introduce them. Yeah, and going off of that, what um, especially design, it all starts with planting and choosing where you're going to plant and how you're going to plant. Um, and so, for example, Lake Clifton was now, uh, it was a human-made lake, um, but it's now a real food farm. They, unfortunately, suffer from really swampy um, soil that hits, like, almost concrete-like um, dirt. So they have a ton of figs, for example, and figs can do kind of okay in the swampiness, but as soon as they hit that concrete um, uh, soil, then they have a hard time just breathing. So their roots can't grow that much longer. Um, you see, start to see this like crunchiness, this kind of like wilting away um, of your fig leaf because the roots aren't growing anymore. So um, if we had dug that much deeper and really saw um, exactly where we were planting and how we were planting, it just helps. And then another form, um, what I've learned from permaculture design um, is that you can plant a nitrogen fixer in between two um, palm fruits. So, uh, or even in stone fruits as well. That nitrogen fixer, so we like to put in lindens just because they're beautiful. They're huge, we like to put them in schools and bees love them. Um, they take it as like a huge hotel. And also, um, so like uh, the Japanese beetle, they like to stay from one, one tree to the next that are very similar. It's kind of like, like my grandmother will only stay at like the Marriott. So <laughs> she'll keep staying at the Marriott no matter where she goes. The Japanese beetle will only stay at that same tree wherever that Japanese beetle goes. Um, but if you put kind of like a confuser um, or something that just blocks it, whether it's a physical barrier or a tree that is just different, um, it'll go somewhere else. And that's not always, that's not a foolproof case by any means. Sure. Um, it's not going to solve any problem that a huge orchardist like these guys are doing um, on that scale. But it's something that like a school can experiment with. So this is the moment I'd love to kind of open this conversation up to our guests here. We always get great questions from the... Uh... Maybe one person can just ask all the questions. Yeah. I'm just curious. You you said something about uh, wires. Do do you grow your trees like grapes, or are they individual trees that? Um, Great question. Uh, And I'll let everyone else chime in too. Uh, That again, uh, to Gwen's point, kind of depends on the specific site we're looking at. So a lot of those kind of sidling hillsides that I mentioned are so beneficial in terms of air drainage and stuff like that. When they start getting a little bit too steep, um, that kind of makes us feel a little bit like squirmish about um, how close we're going to plant the trees together. Um, if we have a flatter area, then that's a, a opportunity for us to do a trellis system for apples, and those are going to be more dwarfing rootstocks, so they're going to be kind of more small, compact, manageable trees. They'd be planted maybe six feet uh, from one tree to the next as opposed to 10 in some other cases. Um, So kind of similar to grapes. There are actually lots of apple training systems that are very similar to grapes in a lot of ways, Um, but our preferred training system is more of a single wire system, um, which is not the most high-density progressive style out there. But that would be an option on a flat piece of ground, on a more kind of sidling hill or somewhere where we don't want to plant them quite so close together for fear our, our equipment, our mowers start going sideways and start mm-hmm. taking out trees. Then we, then we would be um, planting something that's a little bit less dwarfing. That would be a freestanding tree, like uh, typically an M26 size rootstock, if you want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of it. And that would be a, a tree that we would have a single post that we would train it to from early on. Mm. Yeah, um, are you a home grower? Not yet. Not yet? Do you, do you live in the city? No, no. Okay, in the county. In the county. Uh, perfect piece of property that, that could use it. Grow. Yeah, um, one, one thing you could do if you're creating, like, if you'd like to create a natural fence, or if you have something that's called a south-facing warming wall, which really just means a wall that faces south, um, and it kind of acts as, like, a secondary sun, the sun of the sun, basically. And... That you can espalier, which is just a fancy French word for creating like a fruit tree fence. 
Um, it's fairly easy to do. We're doing it at the Homewood Friends Meeting House. We're just in our second year now doing it um, on Charles and uh, 31st. So if you ever want to stop by the office and see it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really easy to do. And you just need a little bit of hardware and some patience, and it'll work. So then I would just ask, what, what tree would you recommend? What apple would you recommend for somebody that's not going to grow commercially but grow in their backyard? Um, I get asked that, that question all the time, and um, generally I tell them uh, one of the disease-resistant varieties. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, all the fruit tree nurseries, there's a big one up in Adams County, Adams County Nursery, they have these scales of 1 to 10 and susceptibility to different diseases and pests, and I say if it's, you know, above a 5 or a, or a 6, I won't, I won't plant that tree anymore mm -hmm. because, you know, and I'm a commercial guy who's out there monitoring it. If it's, got, if it's on the 6 or above scale, you're going to get whatever that disease is. I can guarantee it. So they have these new disease-resistant varieties that are immune to almost everything. And a couple of our favorites are the Liberty. It's a nice, uh, crunchy red apple um, that I think is just outstanding for eating out of hand. And the Gold Rush is another one. It is susceptible to cedar apple rust, so if you have any cedar trees nearby. But they have a host. They keep introducing new ones, and they're really much easier to uh, to grow, you don't have to worry about um, you know spraying them all the time. It, it, a, a good spray of a dormant oil, it, an organic spray at the beginning of the year, and you know that, that should take care of ninety percent of it. And I would plant. We have been we put semi dwarf trees. You're, you're, you don't grow a tree from seed. You grow a tree from a clipping off of the tree that you want to reproduce. Why is that? Can you just if, talk if, about that for a second? Because that's one of the coolest. Yeah. If you grow a seed from tree, there's like one in 3,000 chance that it'll be that same tree because right. of the, the, the genetic complexity of the tree. Right. So instead, we'll go around here actually probably in about a month or so and take prunings off of the trees that we want to reproduce. And then you buy separately with the rootstock, the, the root system, which is what grows from about six inches above ground below. And you graft that. You make a couple sharp cuts and, you know, tape it up so that you, you get a good seal and with any hope that tree will one of the buds on that piece of wood that you cut will, will mm -hmm. take off in the springtime um, but the, the rootstock just controls the size of the tree so when we first did our orchard we did all semi-dwarf trees that were supposed to be 15 to feet tall of course many of them are 17 and you know, much bigger than we, you ever want um, so if I was you I would also plant a dwarf dwarfing tree just as, because you'll never get up there to prune it or pick it and then you end up with diseased fruit that are yeah. hanging down there falling down in your yard so get a dwarfing tree and go for one of the disease resistance and also make sure too if you do plant something that you have a pollinator because most trees are not self-pollinating so you'll need to match that with at least one um, and sometimes two other trees so that the, the, the bees can pollinate the, the, the blossoms. Unless you have a neighborhood with a lot of other trees, you know, apple yeah. trees around it. We um, host a orcharding academy. Um, so if you look on our website, if you want to contact me to, yeah. to join the academy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and one thing what Rob was talking about is the, the rootstock is grafted. So the pruning cut is grafted onto the rootstock. And the rootstock is propagated for its disease resistance. And what's pruned off and used and attached is used for, it was propagated for its um, fruit tasting. So if you bury that grafting union, it kind of looks like a knuckle. Um, if you bury that grafting union, that teaches the rooting stock to keep growing. and It will grow a second trunk. You don't want that second trunk to exist. You want to prune that off. So um, because you're not going to get good tasting fruit, it will be disease resistant, but it's not going to be something that you want. It will take away from what you are actually trying to grow. So my biggest pet peeve is burying that grafting union. I know a lot of nurseries do it, and it will send, like, semi-dwarf trees into huge, ridiculous trees. So be careful not to bury that little knuckle. Quick question. In a city, are there any limitations to what you can grow as far as fruit trees? Yeah, um, it's probably similar limitations that you all experience. Um, it's a little bit warmer. so uh, I mean, by law. Is, is there anything by law, like livestock? Oh, you can law. have livestock oh, and stuff. No. Oh, no. So you no. can grow whatever yeah. you want? Yeah, you can, you can grow whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> so as long as it's not a club variety, but that's a whole other <laughs> discussion. Yeah. discussion. Yeah. It, the only thing is that, like, empire or something I wouldn't grow here. It's, it's just too warm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with the disease-resistant apples, do you find that they're more of the older varieties of apples, like the heirloom that were historically grown in this region, or 
You know what I mean? Like, is York sure. more disease resistant? Um, there's examples of both. Um, you know, there, there's definitely, like, for example, Grimes Golden is a is a um, American heirloom variety that I think originated in Virginia, and that is very, very um, less susceptible, we'll say, to a lot of uh, diseases of apples, especially scab. It's almost impossible to get scab on Grimes Golden. So that's, that's an example of, you know, uh, an heirloom that, that was prized maybe even at that probably is one of the reasons it's still around is because it had some of those qualities and there's there, there's lots of resources out there i have good friends that are part of the the north american fruit explorers and they're a great organization and uh, one of their missions is to go out and and find older disease resistant stocks and and make that uh part of their orchard plan going forward it's especially for cider that's a really cool thing they've got going a lot of uh the disease-resistant varieties that we've been talking about here today have been uh, bred for their resistance. And it's important to, to point out at this time that in every example that doesn't start with the word Arctic, um, <laughs> that apples are classically bred. They're not genetically modified. They're not transgenic technology. So we talked about, like, Gold Rush is a, is a great example of an apple that was part of a disease-resistant breeding program that was all classically crossed, like, you know, flower to flower. And, uh, you know, that's a great example of an outstanding... There's a lot of these disease-resistant varieties that are incredibly, incredibly great. They just don't have the same name recognition as the ones that are in the grocery stores. And so people, you know, at the end of the day, we have to make a, a buck at this thing. And if, I mean, I'm lucky in my position as someone who does sell directly to the public or or to, to chefs and restaurants and wholesalers that I can go out and find stuff that's really good and I can plan it and explain why it's good and, and they can try it and find that it too is good as I said it is, hopefully. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the grocery stores are buying at that point. But for a lot of folks that don't sell directly to the public, I mean, it's the name recognition. And it's kind of it's something we haven't talked about a whole lot in this forum, but... You know, apples are one of the few things that have such name recognition. I mean, apples and grapes, I don't know if anyone aside from fruit growers would be able to name three varieties of peaches or cherries or anything like mm. that. But um, but apples have such unique properties. There's, I think, over 3,000 named apple varieties. And so um, in a lot of ways, that's well, it's a really great thing about apples, but there's a lot of folks that are still very kind of monolithic in the way they think about apple varieties, and it keeps a lot of these great new disease-resistant varieties from getting off the ground the way they should. I was just fascinated. I, my wife and I have said we only knew five of the apples that were grown. So I was the kid who grew up in um, just thinking all my food came from a grocery store in the urban context. You just mentioned something that just really blew my mind, that 3,000 3, varieties. So I think that's kind of like the human race. Like, we are all different from different backgrounds. Mm. Do you have any, I guess a political question, but like... Um, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know this was part but, of the forum. <laughs> but, but, but what you just said was enlightening. Hey, the nation came together. We mm. shared. We had community together over this apple. How, how do you think what you do can help educate um, our nation of saying, hey... Um, we can exist uh, together. That's my favorite question ever. Yeah. We're going to let you run with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite question. And that question. wasn't a plant. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um, yeah, so I, I really think, like, apples really speak to everyone. Um, like, one thing that I was, I was talking about in a workshop the other day is when you're starting a community orchard or any sort of garden, you want to think about accessibility. Um, you want to think about accessibility for children, for older adults, and for moms and dads um, and their timing, um, for people who are working 10 jobs at a time, it feels like. Um, so you really want to think about accessibility. What's great about orchards, especially something like a semi-dwarf tree, is that the fruit's right here. It's literally low-hanging fruit. Um, and you can, you can be doing an activity and talking to someone without the forceful making eye contact with someone you don't necessarily know or get along with. Um, and I've had amazing conversations with all sorts of people I would have never met before. Um, Jeannie Howe, if you don't mind me uh, pointing you out, she's uh, um, kind of like the one and only, uh, like not the only now, but thankfully more thanks to her, but um, a ton 
uh, so she's the orchardist of Callaway. Um, and so Callaway, <laughs> yes, yeah. orchardista, I could call you. Um, and so Callaway is in this really interesting experience where their orchard is literally planted on a median strip that separates two different neighborhoods. So there's Callaway and then there's Ashburton. And they're, they're different neighborhoods in race and ethnicity and um, in income. Uh, Callaway, for example, is where like a lot of mayors have lived back in the day. Um, and so you get uh, just on this median strip of people taking care of these trees. I've met some of the coolest people just picking some apples and laying down some mulch. And um, Jeannie's really good about flyering, and that gets a lot of kids out. And they get to see, literally, again, the fruits of their labor, just from um, pruning, from you know, blossom thinning, fruit thinning, uh, branch bending, mulching. They do all of that hard work. Um, and I get to meet them. I would have never met them before. Jeannie gets to talk to them, doesn't get to see them that much, except for when we're orcharding together. Um, I like to say that like food brings a lot of people together. And then just the process of how we're getting our food now in this day and age, that's really bringing people together. It's an activity that you can do without the forcefulness of like a sit-down interview type conversation. Um, and it's really quite beautiful. We started having community potlucks born from um, these conversations. And now we're going to start having these potlucks um, directly in these orchards once it, it's warmer out in the summer. Um, yeah, it's like... It's really amazing the people that you get to meet, um, the tools that you never thought you could learn to use before. Um, and orcharding is accessible. It's accessible to a lot of people. And I like to keep it that way. So the orchardist gets the yeah. mic. <laughs> Thank you, Gwen. Uh -huh. um, uh, I'm a proud graduate of the first class of the uh, Fruit and Nut Tree Academy, and I can say that it was really incredible and very helpful, mm -hmm. and we've been doing it about three years now. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the other part, which is not just what happens in the community, but about how you um, share the fruit, too, yeah. and, uh -huh. how you, and what, that what that dynamic happens in the neighborhoods as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Jeannie, for that question. So one tree, I, um, is, I'm hesitant to tell people to plant huge orchards in their backyards because one apple tree can feed a family of four like indefinitely and just be living off apples. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we found ourselves just like having not necessarily a plan in mind once we had the apples in hand. Um, so we became a lot more intentional about how we distribute the, f the f uh, fruit. So I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with food deserts or food insecure areas, um, places where there isn't access to grocery stores. And even when there is access to grocery stores, um, it's really hard to find fresh, healthy food. Um, a lot of frozen fruit or uh, you know mac and cheese instead of oranges or apples that are healthy for you. Um, so we've been way more intentional about how we distribute that fruit over the years. Um, now it's, it's still getting harder to track, but um, we give it to churches um, and food banks. So a lot of um, areas in Baltimore, churches and food banks tend to be the same thing. So like the Franciscan Center, for example, Maryland Food Bank likes to take um, any fruit that they can get from us. And, uh, and also the, um, our daily bread um, under the bridge, they have uh, their members cut up the fruit and eat it. And then um, as we're becoming more intentional, we want to keep the fruit not just in our hatchbacks and driven around and distributed because it's not the most efficient uh, way of distributing food, but also the people who are picking the fruit and learning about the fruit to keep the fruit with them and ha empower them to take care of the food as they see fit. So the last part of our mission statement is sharing the harvest among neighbors. Um, and so we kicked off this project um, with Paul's Place, which does a lot of resources for, uh, or creates a lot of resources for people experiencing homelessness um, down in southwest Baltimore, which is adjacent to Carroll Park. And Carroll Park has this beautiful old orchard uh, called Carroll's Hundred that um, slaves actually took care of for a number of years. And because of their um, efficient use of time and their amazing power to really take care and intuition to take care of these trees. These trees still exist today and produce fruit. Um, and a lot of descendants of those slaves now live in Pigtown, right down the street. Um, and a lot of those kids go to Paul's Place. Um, and so those kids get to go to the farmer's market that's in Carroll Park, and then we just string them right, right on over, um, just a quick walk away through the basketball courts um, to Carroll's 100. And they pick the fruit um, and they decide what they want to do with it. Um, some kids have created business models. So at Reginald F. Lewis, um, 
He was a famous African-American uh, businessman and a school named after him in East Baltimore. Um, these kids are in an agricultural business program, and we're planting with them. We just actually planted with them today, and they're creating a business program of what to do with the fruit um, once we harvest it. Um, the fruit won't be able to be harvested for a number of years, but they're being way more intentional about how they want to make money, how they want to be sustainable um, going forward. So thanks for that question, Jeannie. Second favorite question. <laughs> this will probably be our last question. Unless we... Uh, I just have one. If you believe in global warming, and it sounds like moisture and heat really determine what happens to an apple tree, do you guys have long-range plans? Um, or are you shifting varieties as time goes on, what you're planting now? Well, I, I'll speak to that. I mean, I've, I've certainly been pondering it this past year. I mean, we haven't done anything, but I started thinking, you know, th this situation could get bad. I mean, we had the, the summer drought this year. You have the heat and humidity, and it just seems like it's getting worse. Now, it could be I'm just getting old, too, but, uh, uh, or a little bit of both. But uh, it is something that I'm concerned about. And, you know, there are certain northern varieties, or there are a couple of English the cider apples that we grow that are, you know, not used to this kind of climate. And I think there are American varieties that, too, are just not used to this this heat and humidity. So I, I think it may be a long-term problem. I mean, maybe there'll be less fruit grown in the south, or we'll just have to switch switch some varieties. But, can you irrigate uh, Yes, you can. And it probably would need to. Um, if it continues like this. We had an irrigation system that we haven't used in years because we haven't. So this summer when the heat and drought, um, we fired it up. And, of course, we had fountains, geysers all over the orchard. It's 95 degrees, and, you know, it's not when you want to go digging up and repairing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's on the list for May of next year to, uh, to fix that. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we can – I don't think we need to schedule this, this same event for – Oranges and olives in ten years. I don't think it's quite bad that yet, but I'm trying to trying to make a joke. Maybe not. anyhow. Um, I already tried. I, uh, yeah, uh, tough crowd. Yeah, clearly. Um, but no, it's it's something that definitely we are making contingency plans for more variability. Um, I I just feel like the hots are hotter and the colds are colder. And the, 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 the wet, the wet, yeah. When it's wet, it's real wet. When it's dry, it's good and dry. And so, and and I mean to be fair, I kind of joked around about it earlier, but I have already like made little trial one tree plantings of oddball stuff like pomegranates and figs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Figs are, are cool around here, but we're just a little bit colder. It's a little tough. But um, so I mean, I I just love experimenting with stuff like that to begin with. So I'm kind of naturally prone to trying a little of this and a little of that to begin with. Not olives yet, but we might get there. Um, but yeah, we're trying to build. Especially, we had a disaster in our veggies uh, because we pretty much drained the pond this year trying to irrigate them. So um, usually we have enough rainfall in any given year that we can grow a great crop of apples, peaches, anything without irrigating at all, which um, is kind of nice usually but now we are trying to uh obviously there's not a whole lot of <laughs> a whole lot a whole lot of uh ability to do this kind of infrastructure project in a year like we've had but generally speaking we are thinking about ways to build access to water into um, our long-term plans for growing things and and that is 100 percent tied to the change and in, and in, in variable uh climate that we're experiencing here in the East Coast. So everywhere. last quick up question. Uh, one of my favorite moments of the last month was when Rob stopped by. We were having a kitchen meeting outside of Woodbury. He dropped a big box of Liberty Apples on the table, and it was just great. We were all eating Liberty Apples and talking about stuff at Woodbury. What is your favorite apple? Um, geez. Well, for eating I out of hand, yes. I have a new one. It's a new variety for it. It's a disease-resistant. It's called Sundance. Sundance. I, th I think it was a cross of a Cox's Orange Pippin, an old favorite, that doesn't grow well here. Yeah, I love that. And then for eating out of for baking, I love the, the, the cavi, the, the, the pastry. Cavi Blanc? Yes. And your Bramleys make amazing And the Bramleys, too. Yes. I mean, they're just, just... Favorite apple. Gwen? Um, Gold Rush, disease-resistant, and it's a good keeper. Excellent. 
Um, I'll throw two out there. Uh, there was one that I discovered when I was at Penn State called Arlet or Swiss Gourmet, which is a it's a knockout. I love that apple. It's a little bit small, but just got a great fall apple flavor to it, kind of syrupy, sweet, and tart. Mm. And uh, kind of on the same plane, uh, Esophis Spitzenberg is yes. an incredibly <laughs> delicious apple. It's like, and, and uh, we're, we're actually, we're starting our uh, cider company as well, and we found that to be a great, great apple to ferment with because it's high sugar and high acid. So you, mm. can, you can do a lot with that apple. We've measured that apple at 24 bricks already. It's a, it's a stunner. Awesome. It's great. <laughs> So, with that, we have an amazing uh, supper for the folks that are here in the room. Um, apples all through the menu, including cider braised uh, pork loin, uh, cabbage and apple salad, and hard to believe, but we have apple pie for dessert. I hope that goes out. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, thanks again for joining us tonight for our conversation at Artifact Coffee. With special thanks to Dana Slater for producing the program, Hannah Reagan for her masterful coordination, and particular thanks to Donnie Carlo for recording this evening's conversation. We're grateful to be partnering with Heritage Radio in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you to them for creating a home for the Origin Speaker Series. <laughs>